Hello and welcome to the 29th episode of Bridging Extinction. This week I had the pleasure of chatting with Joe Gatos, Science Director at the Sea Doc Society on Orcas Island. He works to connect the community to the environment through science and accessible education. Hope you guys enjoy it. Yes, I can hear you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's beautiful out there, isn't it? Yes, it's. I'm in Monterey right now, and the sun is out. It's gorgeous. Oh, good, good. I didn't know you were in Monterey. I don't know why. I just assumed that you lived up here. So thanks, Erica. Yeah, I well, I did live on Orcas until December, and then I moved to Monterey. But yeah, okay. okay. Awesome. But yeah, thank you for taking the time to meet with me. I'm really excited for this interview. Yeah, of Cool. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your background and position with CDOC? Sure. So I, I'm actually a veterinarian and I started off doing small animal and large animal. And then I went back to school to specialize in doing wild animal health. And so at CDOC, what I do primarily is that I'm, I'm a scientist. And so I work on wild animal health, but from the population perspective, how do we keep animals healthy? How do we keep populations healthy? And so what I do at CDOC, I, we conduct research, but I'm also involved with making sure that that research that either that we do or that other people do gets into science or gets into policy or management and helps make a difference and improve the health of the wildlife that we're studying. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really, really important. That's a big gap that we need to fill. Um, so how does this role fit into CDOC? And tell us a little bit about what CDOC is and the goals there. Sure. So CDOC is, is a program out of the, the veterinary school at UC Davis. We're, we're interested in wildlife health, healthy ecosystems, healthy wildlife, healthy people. And we really have two tools. Our, our vision is to have a healthy Salish Sea, so a healthy environment for people and for, for the animals that live there. And our two main focuses on that are on science and then education. <clears throat> so as I said before, we conduct science, we, we raise money and we fund science, and then we try and make sure that those results get out there and make a change. Just because you publish a paper doesn't mean that anything changes. You have to go to talk to policy people, you have to talk to management people, you have to get together with other scientists. Um, and then the other thing that we do is, like I said, was education. So to have a healthy place, what scientists call place-based conservation, mm -hmm. you need to have the general public, the people who live there, care about that place. And there are three tenets. We, we say you have to know a place, then you have to connect to a place, and then you'll protect the place. And so science is beautiful because it gives us information about what we can do better or might want to do differently, but it's also inspiring and educational. And so we like to take scientific information and then get that out to the general public, the people, the 8 million people that live around the Salish Sea. So they say, wow, that is amazing. That's in my backyard. That's, that's my place. I love that. And then from that comes their interest in taking care of that place that's around there. So our mission is really ensuring the health of marine wildlife through science and education. And our focus is really the Salish Sea. Yeah, that's that's a very powerful thing that you're doing. And I think we need to have more people that resemble that. Because, you know, what if we just have these papers, what can we do with it? But that's that's really inspiring. I know 
when I was living on Orcas Island, I went to several of your um, like movie nights with the Salish Sea um, sort of theme to them. And those were really awesome. And they always had a really good turnout. Um, so why is it important to bring science, education and activism together? Yeah, I think it's like anything. Um, one thing alone can't doesn't make a difference. So it's, I always tell people, it's like going to the doctor and saying, um, well, should I quit drinking or stop smoking or exercise more or eat better? And, mm -hmm. and the doctor will tell you, yes, you have to do all of those things. And so, you know, for there are a lot of people who love activism and I think it's very important, but without science, how do you know what the right thing to do is? Yeah. So if you want to say, if you want to save a species, well, what does that species need? Is that species really endangered? How do you know they just didn't move somewhere else and they're not living in your backyard anymore? And what are the problems with them? And are the things that you're trying to do, do they really help? So that's a big role for science. But like you said, Erica, if you publish a really cool scientific paper that says we should be doing this to save abalone, but nobody reads it, then nothing gets changed. And so you really have to make sure that that information is translated into a bunch of different ways. People are very smart. It's not that people can't read a scientific paper. It's just that people don't. Not many, there are a lot of journals out there and not a lot of us spend our days going and reading journal articles. We depend on the media and communication, movies and documentaries to, to really talk to us about that and tell us about what the science is saying. And so if you lost any one of those components, you're not gonna succeed. And so while our focus is really on science and education, we're always very happy to talk to people that are advocacy oriented to make sure that the things that they're advocating for actually are grounded in science. And so I think if you wanna have conservation, you have to have all of those things. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely crucial. And that's kind of been a theme of some of the episodes um, in a few episodes previous to the one to this one we talked with Lori Marino and she said the same thing. You need to have science with activism. You know, that's a crucial part of it. You have, if you have that fire, you got to take it and fuel it the right direction. Um, yeah. So that's really important. And also I think, you know, you're totally right. People aren't sitting around reading scientific journals. Also, you know, those scientific journals are expensive and not accessible to a lot of people. And there's a right. lot of language used in there. You're right, people are smart, but there's some stuff that it does require baseline information to know. So, you know, I and, think- And that's one of the things that we always try and do. You know, anybody can go to our website, cdocsociety.org, and they can sign up for free updates, news. You don't have to donate because mm -hmm. we feel that this information, the science, it should be free to anybody that wants it. And then whenever we publish papers, whether we've published them or we have funded somebody to do the research, we try and go that extra route and pay for on online open access. So anybody can get those papers and download them. And, and, if, and if the journal's not set up that way, then they can always email us and ask us for a paper. Just because we, we feel like for science to be important, it needs to be used, it needs to be understand understood and, and people sometimes want to go and read the actual publications themselves. And, that, and that's really important to make those available. And like you said, not to have to charge people for things like that. Yeah. 
That's really important. Um, I've personally read some of the articles that you have. Um, the one in particular that was really helpful was the study that you guys did on the economic impact of whale watching in the Salish Sea. Right, right. And also, I really like the way that you visually put that document together, too, because, you know, obviously I see that financial accessibility is a big key to it, but also like that visual and like literary side of accessibility, too. Mm -hmm. So that's that's really awesome that you guys have that. Um, on your website, it says CDOC is, or one of CDOC's unique strengths is translating science into action, um, as a catalyst, bringing together the interested parties to share information, forge a common understanding and design a wide region of solutions. Um, you've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but how do you use science to cultivate action and why is it important to bring various groups together? I know you did just touch on that, um, mm -hmm. but maybe more directly, like how science and action can come together. How do we make these changes? Right. And because if, if you go to a, a, a scientist that maybe studies eelgrass, which is a really important habitat for herring, spawning, and all kinds of young fish and crabs and things like that. Um, and you ask a scientist, how much eelgrass do we need? That, that's not a scientific question. Mm -hmm. That is a public policy, uh, social question. Scientists can tell you, if you want to have this much diversity in seagrasses, if you want to have this much probability of it not going extinct, if you want to have it cover this much of the ecosystem, then you need to do A, B, and C. But the next step is really to go to a group of people and say, okay, we want to have this much certainty that we're not going to lose eelgrass. And we want to have this much diversity because it protects it. What are we going to give up? Because it's all about trade-offs. So you're going to give up the ability to maybe put a dock just wherever you want to put a dock. Or you're going to give up the ability to maybe dredge areas that don't look very interesting to you, but actually are really an eelgrass habitat. And so taking science and getting scientists together, there's a lot of uncertainty with science. So just this past week, Washington Academy of Sciences held a meeting when they talked to a lot of scientists about acoustics, Southern residents, and whale watching. And there's a lot of things we don't know, but you can't let that paralyze you. You have to say, okay, we're gonna accept this much uncertainty. And if these are our goals, we're gonna go forward. And so it's a way to get science to actually inform policy um, and then have people be able to say, hey, if I'm gonna give this up, whatever, driving my boat into the mud so I can run ashore. What am I going to get back out of that? And how much certainty do you have that what you told me is really going to happen? And so that's really the nice thing about being able to get scientists together, being able to have scientists meet with policymakers, being able to have people that are maybe crunching raw data meet with social scientists that can tell us how people think. And, and that's really how we find solutions is taking science all the way into action. Absolutely. Um, do you find that politicians are usually fairly receptive to, like, you know, scientists and their mission? I think that it depends on the politician. Mm -hmm. I think for the what politicians are always receptive to what their people want or are demanding. And, and there are a lot of politicians out there that recognize science is a really powerful tool for moving forward on a lot of difficult issues. And so I think that if, if you understand that they're not going to just do what you tell them because they have to weigh a lot of options. Maybe they have a certain amount of money and they can either build some new roads or pay for some elementary schools or recover a bird that not a lot of people know about. You can give them information 
And what happens if you have a good relationship, then you, they can fall back on you to say, hey, we're actually using good science to make this decision. And we think it's going to benefit the public in the way that the public wants to be benefited. So I think that it just depends on the politician there. And then the scientist has to be willing to understand that they have deadlines. Sometimes they call you on Sunday morning. Sometimes they, you spend a lot of time and they don't do what you say, not because the science wasn't good, but just because that's not what the public really wanted. Absolutely. So it can be challenging, but with that in mind, um, anything worthwhile is challenging. Right? And so you just have to step up to the plate and do your best with that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with with that idea. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely really important. So, you know, you guys are kind of able to initiate action through talking to politicians and then also sharing information. Um, another question I just thought of is, do you feel like, you know, other mainstream documentaries do a good job of adding those elements of science? Do you think science is included enough in nature documentaries or would you like to see more of that? Well, I think I, um, I think number one, you have to have a nature documentary that's that's exciting, or people won't watch it. You uh-huh. can bore them with too much science. That's true. But as a scientist, I think science in itself is usually pretty exciting if you portray it well. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of documentaries, I think that you run the risk. You can be very convincing, but the information you use is not good. And so I think that it comes back onto the producer of those documentaries to feel like hey, we are portraying the best science that's out there right now. And even though it's not ideal for a documentary, you, you want to talk a little bit about where there's uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And um, because I think you will, we owe that to the public. And at the same time, you have to make, I'm not a movie maker, but you have to make it interesting or people won't watch that. And so I think it's a delicate balance. Um, but at the end of the day, I think there's probably not a producer out there that wants to be telling lies. And so... They should be using the science to educate themselves to move forward on that. And I think I've seen a lot of good documentaries that do that. Yeah, absolutely. So what what do you want the public to know about uncertainty? Is there anything else that you would say to them? Yeah, I would say that we, we, we live with uncertainty all the time. When we get into our car, we drive to the store. We just are hoping that that other person stays on the other side of that double lines. And mo- most of the time they do. And unfortunately, sometimes they don't. But it doesn't stop us going to the store. That's a risk we're willing to take. And a lot of times people can hide behind uncertainty. Oh, the scientists are confused. They don't know everything. So we, we shouldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And that's not really how we live our daily lives anyway. We don't know if we're going to be safe by the time we get to the store, but we got a pretty good idea we are. So we go to the store. And, and it's the same way with recovering endangered species. We're never going to know everything we want to know, but it doesn't mean that we can't start taking actions um, that are going to help recover the species that we care about. Yeah. So I say we can't let uncertainty paralyze us. We just have to deal with it. Absolutely. Just do the best that you can with the information that you have. Right. Uh, and then a lot of things, one thing that science can do is as we ask people to give up things to maybe save something like, hey, maybe you're going to be farther away from whales when you're watching them. Well, then we should watch that and see if that actually benefits the whales. Because if it's not benefiting the whales, we shouldn't keep doing it. Right. And it just it makes sense. You go to your doctor and your doctor says, hey, you know what, Joe, you got to stop eating cheesecake for dessert every night because your cholesterol is too high. And so I stopped eating cheesecake for a month. It's really hard for me to do. I love cheesecake. But, but a month later, 
he or she, my doctor is going to test my cholesterol. She's going to draw some blood and she's going to say, hey, look, it's helping. Mm-hmm. And so, great. Okay, well, I'm, I'm happy to have a ha- happy heart and not eat cheesecake. And so we can do the same thing in the environment, too. We can, we can test things to see if they're working. Absolutely. Um, why should people care about the health of the ocean and how does that directly impact human health? Yeah, that's a great question right now, Erica. We're facing this global pandemic. And some people are mad at bats and some people are mad at, at China. But the reality is we should be mad at ourselves because the reason a lot of these viruses like the SARS-2, the one that causes COVID-19, are coming out, we're doing too much deforestation. We're eating too many wild animals that we shouldn't be eating. And that allows viruses to jump over. And so we kind of owe it to our environment to take better care of this place because it takes care of us. I mean, think about the ocean right now. The ocean out there is producing all of this oxygen that we're just breathing and not even thinking about, right? All that photosynthetic plankton, the ocean covers more than 70% of the Earth's surface. It's making oxygen for us. The other thing that the ocean's doing is making water for us, right? It's the driver of the whole water cycle. So every time we pick up a glass, drink water, we're like, thank you, ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, let alone all of the fish, all of the amazing creatures out there like killer whales or tufted puffins or, you know, spiny lump suckers, all of the things that we love, that's a home to those things. And so if, if we don't take care of the ocean, it's going to be just like not taking care of the forest and, and this epidemic, we're going to have problems. It, our weather patterns are going to change. We're going to have problems with our air. We're going to have problems with water. And we're going to lose all of these things that inspire us. Penguins, you know, whales, seals, fish, all these cool things that we love. Um, So we kind of, even if we're not, say, a whale hugger, we owe it to ourselves and our own self, best self-interest to take care of the place where, you know, that takes care of us. Absolutely. Um, You know, I think a lot of us are really passionate about these animals. And you had mentioned, you know, trying to connect with the public and building that relationship. For those who don't necessarily have that vested interest in the environment, how do we reach those people? What other ways yeah, can we do that? That's a really good question. And, and the, the way to do it is not through the channels that we usually use. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, you know, people that don't care about the ocean aren't going to pick up a beautiful magazine on the ocean. You know, but, but um, people that don't know about the ocean may be inspired by going to the beach or maybe inspired by their fifth grade teacher that takes them to the beach or by a friend of theirs who says, I'm just going to tell you why I love the ocean so much. And so it's that piece by piece, educating people, getting people excited about what we know is important for all of us, I think is the way that happens. And, and that's why right now, CDOC, we're investing a lot of time, a lot of money into developing a curriculum for fifth graders all around the Salish Sea to, to use that Salish Sea as a, um, you know, as a platform when they learn about environment and ecosystems and trophic levels and things like that. Um, and so, and then the other thing that I think is, is really important is um, we have this, you know, YouTube series now that's going to go on to PBS called Salish Sea Wild. Wow, it's, that's awesome. Yeah, just five minute episodes. The last one was on giant Pacific octopus and, um, and PBS is going to position it. They're going to use it as interstitial programming. So it's not going to be on every Sunday at, at you know, 7 o'clock at night. It's going to come on, fill five minutes after somebody's watching a cooking show or after somebody's watching a monster truck show or something like that. So we're going to, we're trying to get to people who don't 
always think about the ocean. Um, and so, yeah, we're just trying to expand our reach out there and, and remind everybody how important it is. That is really awesome. And I think that that probably, that's probably going to be impactful because, you know, I know personally, like I've had friends and family members who aren't particularly vested in the ocean, but if they see something that I show them or if they come across a YouTube video or something short where it's not like, you know, necessarily an hour long documentary that can still like, you know, it puts it in their head, they think about it and then they want to, you know, make some changes. So that's really awesome. Um, Imagine, imagine you're watching a cooking show and then you see a five minute thing on giant Pacific octopus and you realize that thing lives right out there in the water outside of your house. Mm -hmm. Like that's crazy. That's so cool. I've never really thought about how cool it is because you just don't see that when you look out and look at over the water. Absolutely. There's so much going on underneath the surface that like people have no idea and it's, it's mesmerizing, you know? Um, why do you think it's important that we build a relationship with the public so that they kind of understand this? Yeah. And that's, I think that's, that's really key, Erica, is that if we want to have place-based conservation, people have to take care of the place and scientists can have all the best information Policymakers can make the best policy, but if the general public doesn't know and understand how it benefits them or how it helps them out, they're not going to do those things. And, and we've seen that time and time again. People have made laws that the public doesn't understand why, and so they don't abide by hunting regulations or fishing regulations, or or they don't not drive their boat fast during in manatee zones or things like that. And so by getting the public on board, that's when you get real place-based conservation. And that's, and that's, like I said before, those are those three components, get people to know a place, get people co- to connect to a place, then they're, then they're gonna wanna protect that place. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, that's really important. I think most of the time people just don't know. Like, I, you know, I don't think that they're actively out trying to, to take over the planet or do anything crazy, no. but you know, and we, we see that with um, like Soundwatch, for example, like they, they've done a lot of research and their studies have found that, you know, um, sh- sharing information has directly impacted like boater and whale interactions. So that is yeah, really important. Nobody, nobody wants to drive over top of a whale and hurt it. They usually just don't know that they're there or know how to be around them. And so they need to be educated. That's, it's part of our job. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this podcast more so focuses on the Southern residents. And I know that you guys have a bunch of different papers that you've published and videos that are out for people that are interested in that. Um, do you have any um, like important documents that you think that they should focus on or where can they find some more studies or things that CDOC has created? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, our website is a really good place to look for stuff like that, cdocsociety.org. And it's S-E-A-D-O-C, like see doctors. Mm-hmm. Some people think it's like B-Doc or D-Doc or something <laughs> like that. And, and there's a list of all the publications that are there. You can find videos there. Um, there's a Salish Sea Wild episode on Southern Resident Killer Whales. And I think one of the neatest things that we're, we're working on now is we're really trying to develop a health database for Southern Resident Killer Whales. And we've gotten support from Microsoft and we've gotten support from uh, National Marine Fisheries Service and a lot of private individuals to make what are basically electronic medical records. And so you, you and I, we just think, oh, it's, yeah, of course we have electronic medical records. I can go to a doctor in Tacoma and then I can go to a doctor in Santa Cruz and they can see my records. It's pretty easy. Um, and if we know all of the Southern residents and we know usually who their mom is and 
probably who their dad is and we know when they were born and they should have medical records and then we should be able to find out like are there actual familial problems that are showing up are there other medical conditions that are showing up that we can't pick out because our data are not in a place to look at that when they when they made electronic medical records for people they were able to go back and really look at the data and start to understand a lot of nuanced things about health that that we didn't know about before because it would take somebody years to kind of plug through paper records and record all of this stuff. And so we feel like it's a really low-hanging fruit and an opportunity for scientists to collaborate. So maybe you work on toxins and someone else works on reproduction. Well, having your data be able to mesh together and having it all tied into the individual animals makes it easy to to look and ask those questions and query the database. And hopefully it's gonna show us things that allow us to take better care of them. Yeah, absolutely. That That is an, an amazing and remarkable tool right there. And I think the more that scientists are connected, the better our science gets, the more understanding that we have. Um, so why is it important that we focus on the health of the entire ecosystem when we want, are looking to protect the Southern residents? Right. And I think we have to do both, right? We have to, we have to realize like just with our own health, we have to walk, we have to eat right. But if we don't have good, healthy air quality, we're going to get asthma and we're going to be more susceptible to viral infections and things like that. So I think it's, it's really important for us to realize that Southern residents need that as well. If we um, work with the Southern residents and we do all these things, but, but water quality suffers or the fish that they need to eat are not there because the fish that those fish eat are not there, then then we're kind of suffering from that perspective. And so I think we need to remember that we have to take care of the whole place as well as focus on taking care of the Southern residents. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's definitely crucial. Like we got to look at the big picture because otherwise we can't, you know, solve the problem without all the pieces to the puzzle. Um, so you've done studies on health, biology, and economics of various animals in the Salish Sea. Why do you consider all of these, um, factors important when considering solutions for environmental problems? Yeah. And it's, again, it's kind of looking at that big picture. If we, if we know it's really important to us to save Southern residents, but when we go to the Washington state legislature and say, we would like you to pass some bills that put some money into restoring and protecting Chinook habitat, they might say, really, you want us to do that when we think it's really important for us to to be funding elementary schools or to be putting money into traffic revisions or more buses because people are so mad about traffic. Well, then we have to speak that language. And so that's why we we did a study and funded Earth Economics to do a study um, a year or so ago to say, what is the economic impact of having killer whales in the area. People spend a lot of money coming from big cities like Seattle and spending it in rural areas like Island County or San Juan County and and make a lot of jobs. And so when you can talk about jobs and you can talk about money, then people who are making policy decisions, they listen a lot better sometimes. So if we had just done the science and not really talk about some of the social aspects or the economic aspects, we may not get things done either. And so I think it's just really important to focus on the whole, just like we focus on the whole ecosystem to save an animal, we have to focus on all the components of how conservation happens. And and that's with science, with education, with economics, 
in, in you know, helping advocacy groups get the right information as well. Yeah, that's really important. I think one of the themes that, you know, I found throughout this project and talking to different people is, you know, we're working to make sure that the salmon and the killer whales don't go extinct. And we also need to put on the table that the people whose livelihoods are surrounded by the dams, we need to make sure that they don't go extinct either, because that's crucial. Right, that's exactly right. And I think it was really interesting this uh, last Indigenous Peoples Day or Columbus Day, when some of the tribes along the Columbia River said, look, this is not just about salmon. This is not just about killer whales. This is about human rights. And we as the Indigenous people in this area have, our human rights have been damaged because you've been putting dams up on these rivers and we've lost a way of life that we've had for, you know, tens of thousands of years before people came into this area. And I think it reminds us that, you know, there's always a bigger picture than what we see. And then I think at the same time too, as people who care about salmon and killer whales and indigenous rights, we have to realize that there's people in Eastern Washington who are very concerned about their job. And so we need to be talking to our representatives and our senators and saying, we want a package that makes everything right. It takes care of the people that are concerned about economics. It takes care about water quality and water temperature. It helps salmon and it helps killer whales because that's what we elected you to do is to find statewide solutions, not just solutions for the eastern part of the state or the western part of the state, because we're all we're all in this together. We just need to make sure we're speaking the same language. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, we definitely need to speak the same language and, and consider all sides of the perspective that we're all on the same team. It's not like east versus west or dams versus killer whales or whatever. Right, right. Um, so that's that's really important. Um so based on just your experience and different scientific findings, um, what do you think it's going to take to get a Washington state policy that's going to um, protect the, the Southern residents without, you know, making the people or the salmon go extinct either? Yeah, I think that we're on the right road to that right now. We've had federal good federal recovery efforts from NOAA, the Canadian side of fisheries and oceans. I think this recent two-year effort that's continuing on with with the governor in Washington state saying, hey, we want to be involved as the people. I think having things like Telequa um, carry her baby and remind us that, hey, these are amazing animals that deserve to exist on their own. And guess what? They're a benefit to all of us while we're there. We're, there. we're going in the right direction. I think that it's easy to look and to see something like the current pandemic that's going on and to to forget that the ocean is important and to forget these, these efforts are important. And yeah, we need to feed people and we need to protect people and we need to find vaccines. There's no doubt we need to do that. At the same time, we, we can't forget that we're in this mess because we didn't take good care of the, the natural world. You know, This is a product of us, too much deforestation, too much use of wild animals, use and abuse of wild animals and selling them for food and trade and things like that. When We don't need that. It's not people's lives and are, are not depending on eating bats and things like that. And so we need to remember that in the, in the long run, we need to actually take care of the ocean. And just, just like we need to remember the long run picture for Southern residents, it's really about restoring native Chinook habitat. And so we can have wild runs that are self-sustaining that takes a lot of vision. And so remembering that we have to take care of the ocean because we don't want it to come back 
and not be able to take care of us. That takes a lot of vision as well. And so I think right now we just need to remember that we need to take care of business and what's at hand right now, but we also need to have that long range vision of how can we do better? And I, I think we can do better. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So what can we as individuals do? And also, you know, people who are in leadership roles do short term to support the long term goals. Right. That's a really good question. So so what's something measurable now that I can do today? Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important for all of your elected officials to know that the health of the ocean, the health of southern resident population, that is important to you because whether you know it or not, every day those people are getting phone calls from people saying, I am in a cowboy hat club and hats are very important and I, you, know, you should fund that. And, and they're listening and they're tallying that up all the time. And so if the ocean is important, if Southern residents are important, if salmon are important, you need to be telling the elected officials because they're there for you. They represent you. So you need to tell them that these are things that are important to you and you want to see certain things done. The other thing is, you know, take time to, to educate people, whether that's your mom or your grandfather or, or your child or your neighbor, remind them why you're so excited about the ocean. Remind them what it does for us. Remind them that, you know, those killer whales are $220 million a year industry. Even if you don't like whales, it's really important for business and people's livelihoods. And so I think just, you know, making sure that this stuff stays in front of people and gets people excited. And frankly, right now, we have a lot of people that are that are home bound right now, doing the right thing, social distancing, taking care of themselves and their neighbors. And those people have time on their hands to think and to aspire to what the world could be like. And it's a good time to be thinking about those long-term goals. And so sh- share with them your vision. You know, let that be a short-term action on your part. Share with them, share with them your long-term vision and, and make them help them to become a part of that long-term vision. Because I think we're all in, we're all in this together. You know, this this pandemic reminds us that, yeah, we're, we may be Americans, but we're also citizens of the world. And whether it's a virus coming from someplace or some food coming from someplace, we are so wrapped in all of this stuff together. We need to look at it as an approach of take better care of each other, take better care of the world, and then we're all going to benefit. There's, there's this great quote um, from, from a book. It actually was on politics and economics, but they said um, Nick Hanauer, and, and I think his name was Eric Lee, wrote this little book, and it's called Gardens of Democracy. And they said, when we're all better off, we're all better off. And I just thought, like, that's kind of dumb. And then I thought, that's actually so true. Yeah. Because when the ocean is better off, we're better off. And when when we're better off, the ocean's better off. And so this whole idea of taking care of each other, I, I think it's it's really important. And so we just, you know, one of the things that we can all do is ask ourselves, let me do what I can do right now to, to help that long-term vision. Absolutely. Yeah. And I completely agree with you. Like right now we have more time to sit and think about what we want the world to look like. And while it's on pause, I think a lot of people are realizing that we functioned at a very fast pace that maybe wasn't so beneficial to everyone. And I think everybody benefits from rest. Um, and, you know, they can use that time to, to dream up the world that they want to live in. Like, ultimately, all these rules and all these systems were made up. We could just remake them up or change what we want to change. Um, so I think that that's really powerful. Um, you had touched on the, the economic side of whale watching. We did an episode where we talked to Adam Demansky about... 
um, the economic portion of the dams, what it would cost to remove them, not remove them, all of those details. Um, can you fill us in a little bit about the economics of whale watching in the Salish Sea? What, how the benefit of the killer whales um, in the San Juan Islands? Yeah, and so we, like I said, Sea Doc Society through through privately raised funds um, funded Earth Economics to do an economic valuation of killer whales and, and whale watching. Um, because, like I said, that was going to be it wasn't a very important thing for the legislature to decide how much money they, and time they wanted to invest in this. And what that study showed, that study is available on our website, cdocsociety.org, is that it's about a $220 million a year industry. And, and it pr produces a lot of jobs for people. And it takes, like most, most watchable wildlife, it takes money from big urban centers and disperses it, moves that money into rural areas that are more economically challenged. And so there's, there's something good there that's happening. In addition, we didn't really study this, um, but you know, getting people out to see whales is exciting. And so, and money is coming, whether you're on a boat or whether you're watching from shore. And so let me just say that, you know, both of those are components. And if you don't want to go onto a boat and you want to watch from shore, then you are still taking time and money and bringing it into the community because of those whales. And so I think we just have to remember it's for people who don't love whales, who, are, who aren't uh, enamored with their longevity, their interest in taking care of each other, with their familial units, with their intelligence, that economic story can be very important for some people. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of people, like the people kind of on the east side of the people living in the communities where that is the whole story for them, you know, that's really what they rely on just because you know, economic wealth is not distributed equally and it has to be, it's no. not a choice, you know? Um, right. So I think that it is really vital to remember that and then consider that that is, you know, a crucial piece of this puzzle as well. If the whales are gone, you know, that's jobs, that's money lost that, you know, could ultimately kind of wreck the economy in those areas. Right, and to be able to sit down with those people and say, yeah, you're a grain farmer and I'm a whale watcher and we both have economic interests and we stand to lose something here. Where can we meet in the middle to make it a win-win? Mm -hmm. You know, how can we how can we increase rail traffic so you can get your grain to the market from a rail rather than by barge? And what would that cost and how would that help uh not only me as a as a whale watcher but maybe help someone else as a salmon fisher or help a native uh, American, an Indian person who feels like they've lost some tribal rights or some 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 human rights because of what we've done to with dams and rivers and things like that. And so I think it's about finding solutions, finding commonality. We we all kind of want the same thing. We want to live a good life. We want to take care of our family and our friends, and we want to have jobs. and And so finding solutions that benefit everybody, I think that's where we need to be right now. We we've seen a couple of years of this country being divided. It doesn't help us. Mm -hmm. We don't. We don't need to divide ourselves. We need to unify ourselves and, and work for common goals. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. We're much stronger together, and I think, you know, people get intimidated and they get discouraged by policy because they do see it as a duality or binary, and it doesn't have to be. We have to work together, and you know, we can work to support each other's goals. We just know that sacrifice is going to be a part of it, and 
perfection and certainty are not guaranteed. So yeah, that's exactly right, Erica. Yeah. So that's, you know, something that is fundamental in looking at this. Um, so what have you learned from the Southern residents or have you had any particular experiences with them that have been impactful to you? Well, I mean, I, I'm not native to Washington state. I, I was born in West Virginia and lived mostly on the East coast. I moved around a lot. My dad was in the military and, and I'd come out here. My wife has had family out here. And I remember when I moved out here, it was really for me, the Southern residents that just kind of solidified my love and interest in this place. And I can remember one time, it was probably about 2001 and I was out on a boat um, with my family and we saw some whales and we just turned the engine off and a whale i swear this whale turned 90 degrees came over to the boat that weren't very many people out at that time and we were just looking over this whale swam right under the boat turned sideways and came and we ran to the other side and just was looking up at us when we came at the other side i feel like when you have that like interspecies contact like that with something that is as big as your boat you're just in awe. And, you and you know, I just thought to myself, this is amazing that we can be so close to Vancouver and Seattle and still have these magnificent creatures here. This is the wild place. This is the kind of place where I want to live, where you still have nature and people can live next door and be able to take care of this place. And so for me, you know, that was a really profound early experience for me that just made me love this place in a, in a way that you know, I've never really had a home like this before. Yeah, I I totally, I, I agree with you. And I think that's beautiful. I, I similar to you, I grew up in Ohio. So neighbors um, to West Virginia right. moved around a lot. I now live in California and it's the seventh state that I've lived in. And I've never felt homesick in my life until after living on Orcas Island. And I'm like, that's, that's my home right there, you know? Yeah. So I'm doing what I need to do here and then I'll be back. But there's there is a certain pull that's there. There's just so much. Mm -hmm. um, and I wish that everyone could experience that. And I think it's amazing that through videos, you're able to share that with people that don't get the chance to travel there otherwise. Yeah, I'm so glad that you like those videos. And we were just, we're just lucky we got someone as, as good as the producer, Bob Friel, who can do underwater videos and tell stories and, and really get the beauty of this place out to the general public. Absolutely. I am curious, is anybody doing any studies um, on what it would take to, like, what the people down at the dams want? Like, the, what would make it worth their while if we removed it? Yeah, that's a good question. I was up, I was optimistic that that might come of a project. The, the, the Kilowell uh, Task Force, I think, put about maybe $750,000 towards looking at questions like this. And they came out with their study um, a few months ago. And I remember reading that thinking, shoot, this is not what I had in mind when I was voting on that. I had really hoped that we could sit down and ask those people, what do you need to be made whole? What sorts of options are on the table for you to do this? That doesn't come from an environmental impact statement. That comes from sitting and talking to people and asking them and, and going to their meeting places and going to their communities. And so, and I'm not sure that people who want Southern resident Kilowell recovery are the right people to do that. I think that it probably should come from our elected officials, uh, our senators, our representatives to say, I take care of you on this side and I take care of the people on the other side of the state. 
I want to sit down with you and I want to make a list of all of those things so we can make a package that makes it all work. Um, so, I mean, that's what we elected them to do is to take care of us as citizens of Washington. And, and this is a thing where I think only they are in a unique position to be able to unify us. And I think we, we need to ask them, hey, we want you to help us do this. We want you to help us make it right for, for people that love salmon and whales and people that love agriculture and, and, and shipping and things like that. Let's, let's get it right for everybody. And let's talk about our grid system so we can keep having cheap electricity, safe electricity, because the world of electricity is changing right now too. It's really going from a centralized to a decentralized grid. We don't wanna be behind on that either. And so it benefits the state in a lot of ways to address this thing head on. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. I was just curious, to like, like I feel like that's one of the key pieces at least that I'm missing in my own personal research um, mm. as far as like what, cause like I don't know what those people want and I don't know what they need. Um, and I wasn't sure if somebody had asked those questions. Um, um, I don't have any other questions. Is there anything else that you want people to know or anything you want to add? I just want to thank you for, for doing this, for shining the spotlight on these amazing animals and this amazing ecosystem and for really giving people hope and for giving people tools that they can use to take better care of this place, because that's what we all need. We just need to learn and keep doing a better job. Um, so thank you. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And you know, thank you for the comment. I definitely, I definitely appreciate that. And I hope that it, it does reach people and, and we can make an impact. We all, we all have to do our part, you know, like you do the videos and science and like, I, I love science too, but right now I'm doing this and education. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely appreciate that comment. Hi guys. Thanks again for joining us for this very special episode. If you want to find out more about Joe or the Sea Doc Society, please visit www.seadocsociety.org. Also, next week, I'll be starting the first of a short series. I'll be focusing on the importance of art in science and what role it plays in conservation and advocacy. If um, you guys have any questions, contributions, anything, find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Also, if you'd like to continue supporting this project, please consider contributing to our Patreon. The link is in our website, but you can also just type Breaching Extinction in the search bar. Have a whale of a week.